Well, I don't think uh, the passage and the week could have been timed more perfectly because we're in Matthew 19. The title of the message is Let the Children Come, and uh, they're going to come all week long, and it'll begin Monday. We kind of just have left registration wide open, I think, for, um, I'm sure they'll shut it down if we, we have too many of we're at such a capacity that we can't handle them, but we've got a great big building uh, to facilitate kids coming and coming in, and what we want them to do is to come to Jesus, and the way that people come to Jesus in this stage of uh, the history of the church is by hearing Jesus speak to them in the Word of God, and Literally, our text is talking about parents who are mobbing Jesus and bringing their infants, uh, probably infant to toddler age, up to Jesus, and they want Jesus to scoop the child up, lay hands on the child, and to pray over that child. The way that we fulfill this passage practically is by bringing children under the hearing of the Word of God, under the truth. We long for, excuse me, we long for kids to hear the Bible, because the Bible is what sows the seed in the heart that later spawns faith for them to believe. I have a best friend of mine who uh, who's a pastor in Richmond, and uh, he was raised in a non-Christian home. I grew up kind of going over to his house a lot, and he, he to mine, and his parents were really sweet people, but unbelievers, kind of outspokenly unbelieving, and and Bill became a Christian uh, during the end of high school, going into college, and ended up doing uh, a version of child evangelism on the border uh, town of um, Texas and El Paso and, and going across the border there uh, in dangerous country, but to, to minister to kids and give the gospel. And it wasn't until he was doing it that he was reminded of an encounter he had as a four-year-old, maybe five, four or five-year-old, where his parents allowed a, a child evangelist, a couple of teenage, probably college teenage girls to come over and do a backyard Bible club in his backyard with picnic tables and things. And they sang songs and gospel songs. And he reflected on how that seed must have been sown in his heart that now was being fulfilled in his ongoing ministry. He's a pastor um, today, but it's amazing to think about what we're doing this week um, in light of the importance of it in terms of Jesus welcoming children. Jesus is bidding the children to come, and we on behalf of Jesus, are bidding the children to come. And I'm not just trying to populate a program. I'm just trying to get you to see that behind the scenes, underneath the surface, God is doing a work where he's building his kingdom through raising up children to believe. And that's good news. We need good news with a culture that is a living contradiction in terms of children. The culture and society will say and scream, we love kids. Oh, you know, kids are victims. You know, you dare not do anything against kids. And yet our culture has a target aim on their back, like a laser pointer on their back, wanting to kill the conscience and soul of every kid that's walking in our world and specifically in our country. It's like it's put a hit on our kids and grandkids, our, our nieces and nephews, wants them to be brainwashed to believe that they are entitled to have life their way at the expense of their own soul. 
They can identify as to whatever they want to identify as and, and just completely block parent parental influence um, and do it by way of laws that are being passed in our culture and society. This is on our minds right now as we're watching culture digress around us. And why is that? Why are kids being aimed at, well, it's to change the culture entirely, probably to the ends of liberal agendas to make money, honestly, at the expense of children. Children used to be more protected, more insulated um, within family structure, and that's fragmenting uh, which e- with, with each passing month, it seems. But we used to have to wait until the university decision where a kid would choose to go to a different university or a secular one, and we'd hold our breath, but they were 18, and they are maybe paying for it and putting themselves in that situation where professors can brainwash young adults away from Christ. Not saying that we should be separatists. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a secular university or a public school, but we need to be duly warned by the indoctrination and the agenda that the world has to cause people to become secular humanists, to cause people to become an idol unto themselves. It's an all-out assault and a war against children now, and it's not when they're 18, it's when they're just walking around in culture. Access to any media means they are accessed by the world, and they're being taught. And the reason that people go after children is they are so vulnerable and so impressionable. They'll learn and they'll listen. And their flesh is being um, sort of assaulted where they're giving license for their own sensuality, their own perversions. If we ignore that, we're wrong. We're in the wrong to let kids be just, just attacked in that way and to stand idly by. But what do we do to counterpunch that? How do we counterpunch Satan? Well, we have the word of God. We have the truth. Christ bids his created children to come to him, to come and be blessed by him and to be invited into the kingdom. You say, well, how powerful is our gospel? How, how big a deal is VBS? Well, to the degree that this program is giving the word of God, it's as powerful as it gets. I'm going to borrow an, borrow an illustration from David Powson, the late David Powson, who was a biblical counselor, great thinker, great um, writer. I was in a conference one time, and he was talking about secular psychology versus biblical counseling, and I'll just borrow that with what I'm talking about. He said that, you know, like the world system is like a giant elephant that's that's going around, and, you know, it's formidable. It's the giant elephant. How do we slay the giant elephant? Well, if you have an elephant there, and then you look down, and uh, the counterattack is coming from something almost microscopic. It's a termite down there on the floor, and you take a magnifying glass, and you look at this termite. The termite is looking back up at the elephant with an RPG and going, you know, I've got this aimed at your head. And the RPG is like the gospel. We have the power of God for salvation. It is the only recourse we have, but it's the single best recourse that we could have and resource that we have to change hearts. It's, it's the only thing that changes hearts. And we have that. And to, to ignore the opportunity of going after children is very naive. The history of our church has always been kid-rich. I mean, it's a near 50-year-old church. It's 46, 47 years old. Back in 1980, Grace Christian School was born here because kids were everywhere. 
the founding uh, members of the church, most that come first hour, they were nodding at me. Um, they were all in their 20s when the church was born and hundreds of people were gathering. It's a, a similar size um, now to what it was then. And, and most were in their 20s, some in their 30s, and they had kids and families and kids were just sort of populating. And there's a quote from the founding pastor where a kid was like behind every tree. You just saw him everywhere. So they populated them around Christian school, around Awana, which we have today with hundreds of people attending, vacation Bible school, Sunday school class. We have youth ministry. We're, this place for, tw- um, for all week long, 24-7, there are kids everywhere in buses, toing, going to and fro and, and learning and being educated. And the reason we value Christian education of kids so much is that kids are being educated one way or the other. Someone is teaching your children, so it better be us that are leading the way with the Bible, the Word of God. This is our vision to contrast the modern, postmodern poison, antinomian, anti-law, anti-foundational, anarchist, libertarian doctrines, the doctrines of androgyny, the androgynous culture that we live in today. We're standing for truth. We've been learning in, in the flow of Matthew 19 about men and women, male, female, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, marriage, togetherness, what that means to be one flesh, singleness, the specialness and significance and calling of that. And now we're learning about children. All of this is the footing and foundation of all of society that needs to be clarified through Christ's teachings here given to us in the gospel of Matthew. Some years ago, there was a Gallup survey um, taken, a Gallup poll survey. Dr. Jim Slack, Southern Baptist Foreign Missionary Society president, was basically making the claim from the survey that 19 out of 20 people who become Christians do so before age, the age of 25. I'm not sure how a survey like that as a, you know, sort of biblical Calvinist understands that because God chooses whom he will and brings people to Christ when he will. But just on a survey level, the idea of 19 out of 20 coming to Christ before 25 is a significant statistic. He says that it's one in 10,000, you know, after 25, after 35, it's one in 50,000, after 45, one in 200,000, after 55, one in 300,000, after 75, one in 700,000. I don't know how you build something like that really as a survey, but it does make the point that when children are young, their clay is still wet. They're still moldable. They're still teachable. We can give them the truth and counterattack and counterpunch all the satanic ideology that's brainwashing them away from Christ, away from the kingdom toward hell instead of heaven. Kids are designed to absorb information and they're open to absorb truth if we will but give it. They want to survive, but we need to have them survive not just physically, but spiritually. Their makeup demands this and we can't ab- abdicate our role. This is not nouveau psychology, by the way. This goes all the way back historically to the teaching of Moses. Moses was leading the the people of God, the community of God that was going into the promised land. He was forbidden, but they were going in. And the best thing he could do was would be to send the instruction for them to teach the word of God. So the word of God would pass down from generation to generation to generation. And that's Deuteronomy 6. You can read it in detail, but it's that you may fear the Lord. That's why I sent the commandments that you 
your God and you and your son and your son's son by son's sons by keeping the statutes and commandments. It just is passed down from generation to generation. It's the fear of God, meaning faith in a big God, the God of scripture is passed down by parents. You shall teach them diligently. Verse seven says to your children, as you talk, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you're to bind it around your foreheads, wear it on your your chest. In other words, the word of God is present atmospherically in your life and in your house. This is why Psalm 8, 2 talks about out of the mouths of babes, people will, um, you know, speak truth. Proverbs 20, 22, 6, if you train them in the way they shall go, they will not depart from it in older age. Matthew 21 is where the, the um, scribes and priests, they were trying to suppress the outcry from, from the children where they're going, Hosanna to the son of David. And these religious leaders are trying to forbid that. They're going, I don't like it. I don't want them to do this. And Jesus quoting Psalm 8 says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Acts 16, you have the Philippian jailers, kids, where the whole household is saved. 1 Corinthians 7, 14, where you have a believer in the influence of a child's life in the home, they are set apart. They are uniquely set apart. They're called holy they're in this sort of splash effect of the gospel where the gospel's coming out in prayers and conversations and, and, and when you peacemake and reconcile things and you talk about things, that changes kids' lives. It makes me assume that a child who is under the hearing of the word of God will be coming to Christ. That was the parents' assumption in the text I haven't read yet, but the parents are pushing, Jesus, pushing their kids to Jesus for seeds to be sown. So that they'll come to Christ and they'll believe. Fathers, don't provoke your children. I mean, the the soul care is there. Ephesians 6, 1 and 4 talks about bringing your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So why is the strong emphasis here in the Bible? It's because children are both very vulnerable to protect the little ones. And they're very impressionable. Should be a top priority in the church because children were, were a top priority to Jesus. Listen to the text, verses 13 through 15. Matthew says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is a big picture of how Jesus is building his kingdom. This is a picture to encourage all of us that the church is going to win. The, The picture of children being brought to Jesus is the open door that Jesus gives to all who will come. If you come to Jesus, he will bless you. He's inviting you into his kingdom. That's what the parents of these kids are promoting. They want their kids to enter into the kingdom. They want the seeds to be sown where they're encountering Jesus, being prayed over by Jesus in an unforgettable way so that they believe that they'll come to faith in Christ in their lifetime. That's what these parents want to do. Now, the word for children is actually um, techni- or, or paideia instead of technion. Paideia meaning it could be an infant. It could be like a toddler. That's the age that's coming. This is not older kids. That would have been technion. But probably more 
you know, a child that, that would be coming to Jesus that he could hold. Mark's gospel in parallel says he scooped the child up in his arms to show the love of Christ for children. But in more broadly than that, how Jesus' kingdom is being built through people not working their way to the kingdom, not, um, you know, making their own way through religious works. This is not a religious rite, you know, some sort of Catholic rite that's given over a child. No, it's, it's the helplessness of a child. It's a child who can do nothing but sit into the lap of Jesus. And that's the picture of eternal life. It's the picture of being saved. When you believe, you're just resting in the arms of Jesus saying, save me. The child doesn't save itself. So this is the picture of childlike faith that is the unstoppable building project of Christ where he is building his kingdom. How does he build his kingdom? Well, children represent this. They represent this building project. That's the header for our outline. And point one, children contrast how people miss the kingdom. If you want to come to Christ, you come like a child comes to Christ. The contrast of this is on display, and that's modeled by the disciples, which I take as the apostles. They were like Jesus' uh, sort of guard, you know, the, like the guard around the king, and they're, they're pressing the parents back rebuking the parents, indicting the parents with severe rebuke. Oh, Jesus is too weary. You know, Jesus has been attacked by the Pharisees. What are you up to? What do these kids have to do with Jesus? They can't understand what Jesus is teaching. I don't know what they were saying, but they were giving a strong admonition for these parents to step back and stay away. Don't bother the Savior. And Jesus didn't like that, but this is to show the pride of religion or the pride of self-interest. Now, these disciples obviously were true followers of Christ and they were stumbling. But if you were unrepentant in a pride like this, where you're like, stay back from Jesus and your heart is hardened in that way, then you yourself are not in the kingdom. Parents here were mobbing Jesus. This is Jesus' final lap of his three years um, journey. He's coming down from Galilee. We've been talking about how he's going, moving alongside of Jordan, going into Jerusalem. And he's in this final lap, and parents are seeing the window of exposure to Jesus on earth closing. I think they sensed it. That's why they're mobbing around him. It's not a religious impulse. It's a spiritual impulse. Similar uh, out of the, the wake of all of the encounters of the patriarchs who would bless people. They would literally lay hands on people to bless them. You remember Noah in Genesis 9, 26 and 29. This is the new world after the flood. He had his three sons and he blessed um, Shem and Japheth contra to Ham. The blessing was removed from him. He blessed those two sons. And Isaac, who blessed Jacob, but not Esau. There is a, a, a real opportunity that is seen here where God is working through patriarchs and blessing, where there's a literal conferring of blessing upon people that were trajectory setting for um, where they were going to go or not go. 
whether they're going to be blessed or not blessed. You have the scene in Genesis 48 at the end of Genesis where Jacob, um, again, Jacob and Esau, this is Jacob who now is in his old age in the story and he lays his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh who are Joseph's kids. He was amazed that he, at the end of his life, even with different things he had done, that he was able to see his son again, to see Joseph again, who he was... Um, thought was dead, and then he's seeing Joseph, and he's seeing his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and loving them. And verse 14 says, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And that had to do with the fact that even though the younger um, was having the right hand, and the older was having the left hand, this was trajectory setting for the blessing of people groups. And Joseph was saying, hey, you've got the wrong hand on the wrong kid, but God had his plan and he had his reasons for how these two grandchildren were going to be blessed. You say, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, this has to do with the fact that Jesus is the word of God. And certain kids are uniquely blessed to come under the hearing of the word of God. And we need to play the role of the parents who want to get kids under the word of God and not be the disciples at this point who are forbidding. This continued, this whole storyline continues in the New Testament, by the way. There are scenes of laying on of hands in Acts 8 where in Samaria, Gentile believers under Peter and John's gospel ministry, they were coming to Christ, Acts 19, where Paul is on the scene at um, Corinth with Apollos and others, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit and they're believing, but there's the laying on of hands in that moment. And then in the New Testament church, Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 14, don't neglect the gift that was affirmed um, in you by the prophecy or the preaching over him by the council of elders who laid hands on you. 2 Timothy 1, 6, fan the flame and the gift in your heart. Don't be discouraged. Remember that they laid their hands on you and they affirmed you in ministry. And 1 Timothy 5, 22, don't be hasty though on laying hands on, uh, nor take part in the sins of other. Keep yourself pure. Don't lay hands too quickly. What is laying hands? What does that mean? Well, for the patriarchs, it was actually trajectory setting as if they are the proxy for God saying, this is how it's going to go. Jacob, you will be blessed. Esau, you will not be blessed. Uh, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh, two different directions. In the New Testament, you have the apostles who are doing similar things, affirming that the gospel had come not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, a strong affirmation through the laying on of hands. And then you have elders and pastors in the church that are visibly seen as being ordained or affirmed for gospel ministry through the laying on of hands. Most of this in the New Testament is symbolic. And when you come out of the apostolic age, you have um, the symbolism of laying on of hands still with, if you're sick, you can um, gather under the elders. We do that here where we will anoint someone with oil and we'll lay hands on them. Does that confer power in that moment? Well, no, but it symbolizes the power of God that's working in his will as it's working out. Sometimes people are healed in this life, but for sure they'll be healed in the next as they go to heaven. Um, the symbols that we have here with 
communion. We have bread and cup, and neither of which are magically empowered. They don't confer anything um, actually, but they do symbolize for us as elements where we remember the gospel by faith and we're enriched by that. Baptism, same thing. When we observe somebody being laid in the water and, and, and taken out of the water, it, nothing magical happens. It's not saving them, but it's symbolizing powerfully. It's affirming powerfully something that is invisible that's happening in the heart. There's a physical expression of it. So the invisible is made visible through the symbolic expression of laying on of hands or observing baptism of the Lord's Supper. It's showing you behind the scenes with something physical. Um, it's, it's the same thing with church discipline, with announcements and things like that. There are things that are happening behind the scenes in the hearts of individual individuals, as we've learned from Matthew 18. There are heart dynamics that are expressed outwardly through physical things that are invisible behind the scenes. This is how the spiritual life works. And this is exactly what's happening with Christ as he invites these children up. These children, I don't believe, are saved because they sat in the lap of Jesus or prayed over by, by literally the Son of God. These children, though, are being prayed over and there is a seed sown in their hearts or in the parents' hearts to raise them in the Lord. And these children need to believe. They need to believe to be saved. But it's symbolizing the special nature of giving the gospel to children and calling them to the kingdom and calling them to Christ. We want to do physical things so that spiritual things will be happening. We want to give the physical truth of the word of God to people so they can hear truth so that heart change will happen. This is the dynamic of this text. God's word is the only authority we have. I can't confer anything on anyone. I can't claim somebody to be saved. I can't command somebody um, in my own power to be saved. All of my commanding is just the Bible commanding. All of the power is in the Bible. All of the power in the eldership is the word of God. It's, it's not the people. It's not, it's not um, the programs that save or change anybody. People in churches today will will raise up a philosophy of ministry and say, this is God's will. He told me to do this. And so we need to do that. If somebody ever says that, if I ever say that, fire me. I mean, you run that because we're not apostles. We're not, we're not prophets. We just are proclaimers. I've been told this, um, you know, all the way back in my ordination, all we are is a straw. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the truth goes through a conduit and that's what changes people. We're just instrumental. Any one of us, as we teach kids, as we teach each other, as we do Bible studies, we're just instrumental. When people begin to raise themselves up as the motivator or the inspirer or, or the, you know, the speaker who's the funny guy or the cool guy or the turn of the phrase guy, that's putting the, the focus on man, not on the word of God. It's the truth. People say, man, we're so Bible heavy. You know, all we say is the truth, the truth, the truth. Well, if you believe it's the word of God and you believe it's the transforming agent that God uses to change people's lives, if it really is God's speech to the heart, why wouldn't we say, yeah, it is all the truth? We either believe that or we don't. It's not a little bit of the truth and cool programs and bells and whistles and raw. No, it's about the word. That's what carries the weight in the church. That's what brings the glory of God. The authority is there, 
No pastor has authority outside of the truth. So Jesus is showing himself as the truth. He is the means for salvation. He was the means for anyone to be saved. The Jairus's daughter who was raised up, little girl, you know, Talitha Kum, you know, little girl, rise. I, he, is, he is the savior of that little girl. The little boy who was throwing himself in the fire and was demonized and throwing himself in the water. He was the savior of that boy. When he rubbed the mud on the eyes of the blind man and the man's sort of beginning to see things and it's picturing him beginning to be illumined to truth, his eyes are being opened by the Messiah who is laying hands on, on him. He laid hands on the sick people. I don't think all of the sick people believed, but he was welcoming them into the kingdom. He was showing them kingdom life. He was portraying what heaven was like. And at times he would affirm people who were healed or people who were rescued as believers, brother, sister, sin no more. He's the savior and he's doing this for children. Jesus is the inherent authority. And these babies were encountering his authority. It's a symbol of grace. What did, what did the disciples do in light of all this? This is the sad reality. This is where all of our hearts can go. The disciples rebuke the people, verse 13. It's a strong word. They're shutting the crowds down. They're not just questioning what they're doing. They're saying, you're in the wrong. They missed it. They were missing what Jesus was doing. Jude 9 is where Michael the archangel, contending with the devil, who was disputing about the body of Moses... He didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord, here's the same word, the Lord rebuke you. What Michael did to Satan, saying the Lord rebuke you, is what the apostles were doing to the parents trying to get their kids to Jesus. The Lord rebuke you. This is wrong. Jesus was fired up about this, by the way. In Mark's account, it says that Jesus was indignant. Jesus was angry with the apostles. They were missing the point. The apostles were 180 out from Jesus, thinking they were protecting him, and Jesus rebuked that. I think we are rebuked um, sometimes when we are either too separatist with our kids, where we're, we're too legalistic, or we're too free-willing, just letting them run the show. Hitting the sweet spot is so difficult in raising kids. It's a hard balance. I've heard it said, hey, we don't let our kids pray you know, at dinner or out loud, because we don't want to raise Pharisees. I, I don't believe that. I think it's important for kids to follow and, and follow you as you follow Christ, for you to um, you know, show that to them and let them experience that. But at the same time, when people rush kids into the baptistry um, to try to seal their faith, oh, they made a decision, they made a prayer, you know, I don't want to test it, you know, and, and I know they believed because I, I know they believe. So, you know, but I'm not saying children can't be baptized, they can. I've always thought of it this way. If a kid is ready to make an adult-like decision like that, they should do it. They should stand up and speak their heart, share their testimony, and say, I'm giving my life to Christ. And we should encourage that. But we also, on the other hand, should not just push a kid into that moment because the parent wants it to like seal something off as if they'll, they'll lose their salvation moment if we don't go through the religious rite and practice. It's, baptism doesn't save 
Baptism doesn't save. Taking communion does not save. Church membership does not save. All these things are symbolic of a heart transformation. So if the transformation has happened in the heart, then yes, like the Ethiopian eunuch, we have water. Why not get baptized? Absolutely. But we have to discern that and be careful as parents to not suppress kids from taking steps towards the Lord. We want to encourage that. But at the same time, we don't want to be willy-nilly about it and just say, okay, let's just go through the motions and get it done. It's difficult to figure out. The pride of the disciples here is one that we don't want to dismiss. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to dampen the moment in a child's heart. So children, they represent basically um, how someone comes into the kingdom. They contrast those who are not coming into the kingdom, those who are bound up in pride, who will never break. Um, children of the innocent ones, you know, they're born in sin, but they, they're, they're not yet calloused by the world's indoctrinations. They're more open to truth. They're more open and teachable at a young age. And we don't want to miss the opportunity to keep giving the word of God. And I want to add something. Um, don't miss the opportunity for the high schooler. Don't miss the opportunity for the young collegian. Don't miss the opportunity to the young married. Keep investing in people. Don't just say, well, they're 18 now out of the house. It's, it's off my back. No, they still want to be trained. They still want input. They might give you a poker face about it, but you need to still give them input. Grandparents do it. Yeah, but I fail with my kids. Give it to the grandkids. You know, give it to the you single person. I don't have kids. Go to your nephew, go to your niece, go to your, your friend's kids and influence them appropriately so with the truth. This is a collaborative effort in the gospel. I love it when significant others invest in other people's kids where it's a safe, commendable, respectable environment that, that truth can go out. There's nothing greater than that. John Newton, the former slave trader turned Christian preacher who wrote Amazing Grace, he said this. He was a very studious pastor, so he studied all the time, but he said, if children are around the front door of the house of a preacher, this is a sign of love for Christ. If the kids want to be around you, that's what Jesus is like. What does he say? He says, verse 14, let... The little children, let the little babies, let the little paideia come to me and do not hinder. Do not forbid them. Do not hinder them. Do not, don't hold them back for such, for to such belongs the kingdom of, of heaven. It belongs to them. Christian lo, Christians should love little hearts, um, have patience. It's a sign of love in our own hearts. I've seen spiritual leaders, you probably have too, as they age and get older and closer to heaven, they begin to care about children's ministry more and more because they know that where they're going, they want children to follow. They might be softened by having grandkids at that stage in life, but they're more open. They see children's ministry as a high value, something to invest in. Why? Well, under this point too, children represent making it into the kingdom um, first of all, we don't hinder them because children can come into the kingdom. Children can come into the kingdom. We train them up in the way they should go. That's a proverb. It's an axiomatic dynamic of sowing and reaping. We sow seeds so they'll come into the kingdom. It's sowing and reaping. 
I just put some grass seed on my lawn yesterday in hope of hopes that some sun might come out. Who else did that? Anyway, yeah, we get it. We get it. I see that hand. That's exciting. Now I have you. But it's the same thing in the hearts of kids. If you sow it, there's going to be reaping. It doesn't guarantee that a child will come to saving faith. But the promise is proverbial. It's a proverb cause and effect thing that we want to be a part of as we leave the result up to God. Again, I mentioned before, when Jesus will come into his triumphal entry, Matthew 21, we'll be there in a little while, but the scribes and priests want none of this. Hard-hearted people don't want to hear this. And Jesus is saying, it's out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies that you've prepared praise. They were saying, Hosanna, son of David, in the temple. Acts 16, Philippian jailers, kids are saved. 1 Corinthians 7, 14, I said it before. Kids are set apart by the splash effect of the gospel in the home. Ephesians 6, 1, we are commanded to raise our kids in the discipline instruction of the Lord. When kids are around a believer, an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent, or a parent, I'm assuming very, very powerful things are happening. Always. When kids don't want to be around that influence, there's powerful things that are happening as well. But I always make the assumption that kids that are raised with a believer are going to believe. That's how powerful things are. It's why Titus 1.6 says that it's the qualification of a spiritual leader like a pastor to have kids, children who believe. What does that mean? What well, means, I think, practically, if you harmonize that with 1 Timothy 3, that there are heart dynamics going on in the home that keep kids' hearts soft while they're there. And if a kid's heart is not soft while he's in the home of a pastor or a preacher, that is a disqualifier. It disqualifies people from spiritual leadership. Once they leave the home, it's a little bit different of a story. But while they're there, there should be soft hearts and you work hard at that. It takes a lot of sweat equity to pray with kids, to reconcile things, to talk about things, to confess your own sins to your kids, to be vulnerable, to actually read the Bible out loud with your kids, to pray with them. That's hard work. And if you don't do it at home, it hardens hearts. Number B here is do not hinder children because they belong um, in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is theirs. It's the kingdom of heaven. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, I think one way to take this idea is to understand that if a child dies before he or she is able to articulate the gospel, to fully grasp the gospel, I believe the Bible teaches that they go to heaven. It's as if they're already there. When they're coming onto the lap of Jesus, it's as if they're already in heaven. They're already in the presence of Christ. I think that's true with mentally handicapped children as well. Those who can't fully understand or grasp the gospel to say it, to articulate it. They're at a place where they are safe in the arms of Jesus. You say, what about Psalm 51.5? I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. Did my mother conceive me? Sin obviously forbids people from going to heaven because Heaven is holy. God is holy. They're under Adam's curse. Um, It's the condition of total depravity. But I believe the Bible teaches, well, Revelation 20, 13 teaches that at the great white throne judgment, people are judged according to what they have done. That's the language there at the great white throne. It's according to volitional sins, transgressions that are, are willful and wrong and 
It's not that you're not born with sin in your heart. It just seems as though God is saying that these children, though they are sinners, are under this umbrella of grace at this point in the process. It's the little ones. In Leviticus 18, 21, it talks about not sacrificing your children. The child sacrifice was big back in the day, just like abortion is today. But children were offered to Molech um, to profane God. And Ezekiel 16, 20 and 21 is where God calls the children sons and daughters. He says, you've sacrificed your sons and daughters whom you had, had born to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. And he says, you slaughtered my children, my children, and delivered them to the fire. My children. He loves his children. I think that's why earlier in Matthew's account, he says, better a millstone be tied around someone's neck and they'd be drowned in the sea than they cause a little one to stumble. The little ones are his. The angels in heaven are watching the father's face as he rules over his Little ones, they are in his care. You say, well, how do we know that if a baby dies, you know, a stillborn birth or, you know, someone's lost in the womb or, or lost afterward to SIDS or something happens to a child, how do we know they're in heaven? Well, Second Samuel twelve twenty three, the child that was born to Bathsheba um, in, you know, as, a, as part of a judgment for the adulterous affair, with um, David and Bathsheba, the child was sick, and then David was praying. He was fasting for this child's recovery, and then he was it was announced Second Samuel twelve twenty three. But now he is dead, and David said, "Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me." David had faith that he's going to heaven for a reunion. In Second Samuel eighteen thirty one, he's bemoaning the fate of Absalom and he's hearing from the Cushite uh, you know, informant that Absalom, his son who had created a rebellious insurrection, taking the armies of Israel against his dad who ultimately was caught with his hair in the thicket and was, was speared through in that moment. It was reported back to him that Absalom had died and it says the king was deeply moved and went to his chamber over the gate, verse 33 of 2 Samuel 18. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Two dramatically different expressions, one for uh, a child who died and, and he believes is in heaven and he will see again, and the other who he is separated from forever, Absalom and death. Well, let's take this forward a little bit. What, is, what does John Calvin think of all this stuff? Did you ever ask that? What would Calvin do? Do you ever? No? What would Calvin think about? What would Calvin think about babies who die? You know, isn't he kind of up in a tower condemning everybody? This is what he said. And this is uh, taken from a blog from Jesse Johnson, um, who's a pastor friend of mine in Washington, D.C. He says, the oldest evidence of this debate I found is in Calvin's Institutes, where Calvin condemned Servetus. He said that Servetus' theology was so twisted that it stressed free will to the point that if you followed him, you would be forced to conclude that even infants who die were damned to hell because they were not able to exercise their will to believe in saving faith. It's Arminianism. If they can't mouth the words, then they're not going to heaven. 
So Calvin is saying, no, there has to be some grace given to children who are unable to do that at that point. It says in the same section, Calvin addressed John 3.36, which is talking about believing on Jesus. And argues that it points to infant salvation as infants were not able to exercise willing unbelief. So they, do not, so they could not possibly stand condemned. Al Mohler, you know him from Southern Seminary, believes the same thing. He, was, he um, quoted Deuteronomy 135, which is the evil first generation that wandered in the wilderness and fell in the wilderness during the 40 years of rebellion. And he quoted or cited Deuteronomy 139, where it says, and as for your little ones, this is the second generation under that first generation that fell, the second one's going into the promised land. It says, as for your little ones who you said would become prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. The second generation is going in. And to that he speaks of children being exempted from this sentence that the parents were under. The hope and comfort um, of believing that babies who die are in heaven um, was expressed by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he did so evangelistically to unbelieving moms and dads. He said, now let every mother and father here present know it is well with the child if God has taken it away from you in its infant days. Many of you are parents who have children in heaven. It is not a desirable thing Is it not a desirable thing that you should go there too? Mother, unconverted mother from the battlements of heaven. Your child beckons you to paradise. Father, ungodly and penitent father. The little eyes that once looked joyously on you look down upon you now. And the lips which scarcely learned to call you father, sealed by the silence of death, may be heard as with a small, still, small voice. Father. Must we be forever divided? Does not nature itself put a longing that you may be bound in the bundle of life with your children? This is the comfort of heaven. We give all of our children to God in that way and trust him. We trust him with with heaven's outcome. The king is the only one who can let the children in, verse 15 says, and he laid his hands on them. Mark's gospel says he scooped them up in his arms and brought him up on his lap. That's what he did. He's the one that brings people into heaven. All of our trust is in God. Whether the child um, dies or matures, we're trusting God with the outcome of these children. There's no greater joy than to know that our children are walking in the truth. And so we pray to that end, but we trust God with the outcome with our children. Even as we have the passion to get them in front of Jesus, which is to bring them under the hearing of the word of God. So they'll know him and they'll have heaven. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the ultimate picture of grace. I had a good childhood, a good upbringing in a Christian home. And my Christian home was great. It, it wasn't perfect, I'm sure. But the older I get, the less I remember about its imperfections. I don't know if you have an experience like that. Some of you were raised in good Christian homes where, you know, there, of course there were sinful things that happened and wrongs and things committed. I mean, we all have them. We all know in our own hearts. But a lot of that stuff kind of fades to the background when you have a home that was built with unconditional love. Unconditional love is what God gives to all of us, no matter how we were raised. 
no matter what home we were born into or brought up in. Unconditional love. Romans 8, 14, we are given the adoption, the spirit of adoption as sons where we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're the ones who are welcomed in by Christ. Yes, the logical view says that, you know, the sin nature forbids kids into heaven. The agnostic view would say that, well, God is good, so we're shielded from knowing whether kids are in heaven or hell. (laughs) That's a view that's very prevalent. And then the scriptural view, this is what I believe it is, is we know as much as the Bible tells us. And we know that Jesus is welcoming children and saying the kingdom of God is theirs. That's what we know. How we square that is by faith. We have to trust that God has a way and a means through the blood of Christ to wash those babies as they enter into heaven. God's witness is there. He loves his little ones. David's testimony is there. And Jesus blesses children. So with all this in our hearts and minds, where are we going for this week? Pray for kids. We don't wish kids to die before they hear the gospel. We don't wish kids to die before they can believe. That would be sadistic. Um, we, we can't understand the mystery of God and how he's ushering in kids, probably from all over the world in all kinds of weird pagan cultures. Babies maybe die before they're influenced and indoctrinated by the evils that are in paganism. Our country itself is becoming more and more evil and pagan. We have to counterpunch punch that paganism by giving the word of God and calling children to come to Christ. We want them to come. Why? Because Jesus says, come to me. Come to me for such is the kingdom of God to them. Come. And if you've not yet come, even if you're a chi- or not a child but an adult, come to Jesus. Jesus bids you to come to him. The witness of the word of God is Jesus' voice to you in your own heart. Come to Jesus. He bids you to come. Enter his presence because he made you. He created you. Let him recreate you in the gospel by his grace.